Good afternoon and welcome to Community Focus. I'm Kyle Gassett. My guest today, author Eric Slosser, once wrote, Hundreds of millions of people buy fast food every day without giving it much thought, unaware of the subtle and not-so-subtle ramifications of their purchases. They rarely consider where the food came from, how it was made, what it's doing to the community around them. They just grab their tray off the counter, find a table, take a seat, unwrap the paper, and dig in. The whole experience is transitory and soon forgotten. That quote is from Fast Food Nation, The Dark Side of the American Meal, which after its publication in 2001 became a bestseller and was followed in 2003 by the equally popular book, Reefer Madness, Sex, Drugs, and Cheap Labor in the American Economy. On March 22nd, Eric Slosser visited Auburn University as part of No Impact Week, and he joined me for a public interview at the Auburn Unitarian Universalist Fellowship. Today on the show, we bring you part of that interview. Great. Thank you, Eric. For Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, I wanted to start with a, a piece that appeared in the Daily Beast last week, which is something I, that occasioned by the 10 years of Fast Food Nation since 2001. And in that piece, you cited a couple of things. You said, every day, about 65 million people eat at a McDonald's restaurant somewhere in the world. The annual revenues of the fast food industry adjusted for inflation have risen about 20% since 2001. The number of fast food ads aimed at American children has greatly increased. Two-thirds of the adults in the United States are obese or overweight, and the obesity rate among preschoolers has doubled in the past 30 years. And the rate among children aged to 6 to 11, it's tripled. And also by an odd coincidence, the annual cost of the national obesity epidemic is about $168 billion. So it's calculated at the same amount of money that Americans spend on fast food in 2011. So where are we in terms of our consumption of fast food and where are we as a nation since? Yeah. Well, that's the bad news. <laughs> and uh, there is a lot of bad news. And there's not a, I mean, my ego is big, but I'm not so much as of a megalomaniac as to think I could write a book and all these big, powerful institutions would suddenly vanish. But it is... It is sad that these problems are now known. Uh, the impact of this diet on the people who eat the food, the impact on livestock of this industrial system that is so cruel. Uh, the environmental harms are clear, and yet some of these problems are getting much worse. And in many ways, uh, you know, McDonald's is more powerful now than it was 10 years ago. There are encouraging signs, too. What's happening in this country is we're moving really towards two food systems. There is this fast food, junk food system that's pretty much feeding the poor and ordinary working people in this country. And you know what's encouraging is in the last 10 years, a food movement has arisen in this country. And people who are well-educated and middle class and upper middle class are changing their diet, are more interested in food than ever before and are rejecting this system. So, you know, I'm, I'm discouraged by the power still of these big companies, but uh, I really believe that once people have access to information, once people have access to the income that you need to eat better and to buy this food that's more expensive, they change. Uh, and so the real challenge for the next 10 years, in my mind, is to take this food movement that's been incredibly successful uh, among a well-educated elite, maybe 
three, four, five percent of the population and bring good, healthy food to every American. And, uh, and that's going to be the challenge. Well, sure. And, you, and you, as you said, it's not all on your shoulders, too. I mean, we have Marion Nessel working and Jamie Oliver and Mark Bittman and Michael Pollan and a lot of those folks. And also some of the buzzwords in, in restaurant industry are, are local sourcing, sustainability, nutrition. Do you think those are movements that are gaining, have an impact that are really going to take off? And Yeah. And I, I didn't want to imply that it's all on my shoulders. As a matter of fact, I'm... I'm pretty much leaving this movement, and I mean, I care a great deal about these issues, and I'm going to try to be useful, but I've spent about 10 years um, as an activist, and my next book is on an even more happy subject, which is nuclear weapons. So I'm, I'm going to... <laughs> so stay I'm, tuned. I'm, I'm moving in an, into an even cheerier realm, and it's amazing to me how many great writers and filmmakers mm-hmm. have now taken on this subject. And that's what a movement is. A movement isn't about one person or one book. A movement is about more and more people who think the same way, um, trying to change things. Well, I wanted to read a quote. Um, Here was a population, low class and mostly foreign, hanging always on the verge of starvation and dependent for its opportunities on life upon the whim of men, every bit as brutal and unscrupulous as the old time slave drivers. Under such circumstances, immorality was exactly and inevitable and as prevalent as it was under the system of chattel slavery. And that was Upton Sinclair from the jungle. So I was wondering, you know, um, in terms of addressing the workforce that that goes that is so much a part of the production of food. And as we said, that, that, you know, the lower class of society that really is involved working in, in with the food industry, those issues that you have encountered, how has that affected you or changed your outlook? I really came to the subject of food by looking at the lives of the poorest workers in the United States. And my interest in food really came about because of my interest in social justice. It's something I'm going to talk about uh, tonight, uh, this afternoon when I, when I give a talk. In uh, the early 90s, there was uh, a lot of political uh, posturing in California about illegal immigrants coming to California as, you know, to live off of taxpayers and that illegal immigrants were welfare cheats. And there was the governor at the time who wanted to be president. His name was Pete Wilson. And he was a liberal to moderate Republican, but he thought he had to look tough to appeal to the right wing of the party. And he led this anti-immigrant crusade. And I'd spent a lot of time in California, and it just seemed counterintuitive because the Mexicans who I saw tended to be working very hard at jobs that no one else seemed to want to do. So I spent a year um, investigating the role of illegal immigrants in the California economy and it turned out they were propping up the largest sector of the California economy which is agriculture and being terribly, terribly mistreated but also bringing us all these fresh fruits and vegetables that are the staple of a healthy diet. What's sad, and my background academically is American history, is you want to think that history progresses in a way that things constantly get better and knowledge grows and we we kind of elevate ourselves as a society and leave behind certain brutal practices. But very sadly, 
the last 30 to 35 years in the United States have been a reversion to terrible, terrible periods of our history. And you quote Upton Sinclair. Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle because he was appalled by the mistreatment of poor immigrants in the meatpacking plants of Chicago. And the terrible working conditions that he wrote about were improved so that by the, you know, the mid-1950s, to be a meatpacking worker in the United States was to have one of the highest paid industrial jobs in the United States and benefits and a pension. And basically, the wages of meatpacking workers by the early 1960s were similar to that of auto workers. In today's dollars, their wages may have been 35 to $40 an hour. And Americans ate a lot of meat. It's not like we ran out of meat because the workers were paid a decent wage. And then the meatpacking companies brought in uh, illegal immigrants and recent immigrants and used them as union busters and used them to break strikes. So today the wages in meatpacking may be $15, $16 an hour, a huge pay cut. And the conditions are not as bad as when Upton Sinclair wrote The Jungle, but a lot of the same sort of things happen. Injure, uh, workers getting injured on the job and then fired. Uh, workers being treated as though they're completely disposable, not like they're human beings. And again, I came to the subject of food through agriculture, but a similar sort of thing has happened. In California, which produces most of our fruits and vegetables, when the United Farm Workers Union and Cesar Chavez was organizing farm workers, the starting wage as a, letting pick, as a lettuce picker. The starting wage in California in today's dollars was about $16 an hour, um, even higher for more experienced workers. Now, the minimum wage in the United States today is $7.25, so that's more than double the minimum wage. And I was a kid then, and you know people were eating salad. It's not like we didn't have any lettuce, but you've seen an enormous decline in wages at the bottom of this society. And in the very same years that the poorest people in this country have gotten a huge pay cut, uh, you look at the upper 1% and the incredible rise in income uh, that's gone to the very top. And so these, these food issues to me are important in terms of food. I care about childhood nutrition. I care about rural economies. I care about the organic movement but my interest in them ultimately was about what they say about this country and what's happened to this country. And you can't separate any of these food issues from the bigger uh, problems that we're facing right now. Well, I also want to open the floor. Questions? My name is Randall Williams. Uh, I wanted to ask uh, what you see as the role for unions and if you were given advice to the union movement, what would some of that advice be in a state like Alabama, which is so hostile toward uh, unions in every sort of way? I'm not an economist, but it looks to me as if unionized labor in Korea is more expensive for the makers of Hyundai, for example, those cars, is more expensive than non-unionized labor uh, here in Alabama. So we have this uh, sort of peculiar cir circumstance where the state of Alabama is being exploited as a third world nation, its labor force is, by another country. And 
workers so far have been powerless to resist any of these changes, and I wonder what your uh, thoughts are on, on that. Uh, I'm a big believer in unions in theory and in practice. I've been amazed at the corruption of some of the unions that I've encountered. So the first thing that I would say to unions is fight to rid yourself of corrupt leadership and reconnect with the reason that unions were created in the beginning, which was firstly to serve their workers and secondly to believe that by serving their workers they're playing a part in society as a whole. Um, some of the corrupt union leadership in this country is just appalling. And I'm critical of corporations when they misbehave, but I'm actually more critical. I, I feel like a corrupt union is even more despicable because at least a business is hiring somebody and giving them a job, whereas a corrupt union is just like a parasite feeding off the workers. Having said that, we see what happens when there is no union. I mean, it was unions that brought us a 40-hour work week. It was unions that brought us a minimum wage. It was unions that helped to get rid of child labor. And there's a historical amnesia in this country in which unions are always portrayed as bad, whereas in the absence of unions, if you go back to the America of the late 19th century, people were working six days a week People who were injured were fired. Sexual harassment was routine. So there is a need for some organization to speak up on behalf of the rights of workers. Well, that feels like a really good, good place to stop. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Author thank you. Eric Slosser has written the bestsellers Fast Food Nation and Reefer Madness and also co-produced the award-winning documentary Food, Inc. Our interview today was co-sponsored by East Alabama Arts and Auburn University. You can stream or download the entire interview at www.eastalabamaarts.org. We had production help today from Kelly Walker. This has been Community Focus. I'm Kyle Gassett in for Carolyn Hutchison. Our program is a public service of Troy University, and we now return you to Troy for the remainder of your news hour.